The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love. Like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE to learn more or visit a store today. Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Good morning. Today is Thursday. Uh, March 6th, I'd like to welcome you to the program. Um, we are going to be answering today a number of questions that have come up this week from many of our uh, Facebook subscribers or YouTube subscribers. And they're, they're actually very good questions. They are on a variety of topics, everything from social media rules uh, to real estate transactions and some estate planning questions all the way down to some employment law issues. So uh, it'll be a, a, a variety of topics today. Uh, and before we get into those topics, I want to just remind you that uh, next week, next Thursday at 10 a.m., we are going to have as a guest on our show, Brian Glynn of Cigar Obsession. Dot com. It's um, going to be a very, very fascinating show. We're going to talk to Brian about his business. He has this uh, cigar review website and YouTube page, uh, but he also is a professional photographer. So we're going to discuss with him issues concerning he, his, um, his photography business and some copyright and some legal issues that concern photography and photographers. And then we're going to talk about his hobby, if you want to call it, this Cigar Obsession website, which is an incredible website. Um, and there are a tremendous amount of business tips and um, sort of management tactics that you can learn from what Brian is doing on the site. So next week's going to be a very interesting show. We'll have Brian on for the entire hour. And you know, we welcome calls into the show, uh, the switchboards 347-855-8831. Obviously, that number can be called at any time if you have a question while the show is live. Uh, but next week in particular, I know that Brian has a lot of YouTube followers, so we're going to be posting on our social media sites, um, and we welcome questions for him. But instead of talking about cigars and that sort of thing, we're going to see how what he does really is an excellent business model for a lot of small to mid-sized companies. So that's next Thursday at 10 o'clock. Now, before we get into the topics that have been raised by our subscribers and followers this week, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, recent news story here in North Jersey. It's quite fascinating. Um, the town of Ridgewood, which is a Bergen County town in North Jersey, has a public high school and parents of this public high school have the option to either send their kids in with homemade lunches or to buy lunch at the school. That's just like every other high school in the United States. Ridgewood happens to be a more expensive town. You know, the property values are a little bit higher. Uh, I, I would just consider it to be more of a, a wealthy town with uh, wealthier families and individuals. Now, 
what's happened is that these kids were ordering out during lunch because they either didn't like what their parents packed, didn't bring lunch from home, or they just didn't want to buy the cafeteria food. Everybody knows what cafeteria food is like, and you know some people like it. Most people mock it. We've seen all the Saturday Night Live skits concerning uh, cafeteria food and all the other jokes made about it. But generally speaking, schools are trying to provide healthier lunches to kids. Well, the Bridgewood students were going out and they were ordering from a lot of the local food establishments, bagel places, pizza places. And then they were having these people come into the school to deliver the food. So the superintendent of schools in Ridgewood issued a, uh, a, a, a ruling, if you will, and has prevented students from now ordering outside of the school and allowing delivery people to come into the school. And believe it or not, a group of these eateries have filed a lawsuit in the Superior Court of New Jersey arguing that this decision by the superintendent has negated parental choice and created trouble for parents due to what they consider to be a lack of sufficient lunch choices. So clearly what's going on here is these eateries, these food establishments, were making, I would imagine, a significant amount of money on a weekly, monthly, annual basis because you've got at least a thousand kids in the high school and even if a small portion of them are ordering out every day, you take that away from these bagel places and pizza places and I would I would venture to say that they're losing out on some money. So the reality of this is that the attorney can say whatever he or she wants about the reasoning behind this lawsuit, but it comes down to one thing, and that one thing is money. So these businesses are suing to try to uh, overturn the superintendent's decision about having delivery people into the school and, and the student's ability to order lunches outside. Now, I think that this creates a security problem Aside from the idea of just being able to order out, you're having delivery people come into the school. I mean, aren't we as a society afraid of allowing people into the school? Isn't that why certain schools have metal detection or police or security guards? You know, haven't we seen this every day on the news? What are we doing about school security? Well, here you have people coming to the school, making deliveries, I mean, it just doesn't sound to me like that's the best thing for security. And I would also venture a guess and say that in the event that there was a, a problem at the school and security was one of the issues raised, that all of these people who are crying foul because the superintendent has decided to prevent lunch deliveries would be blaming the superintendent for allowing strangers to make deliveries into the school and thereby breaching security protocol. So you can't win here. But I personally think that this lawsuit's ridiculous. And surprisingly enough, it's filed by a relatively well-known large law firm in New Jersey. So whether it's, uh, you know, media attention or, or, or whatever it is that these uh, restaurants are seeking. I think that the lawsuit itself is, is frivolous and, and ridiculous. That doesn't mean that the superintendent's ruling won't be overturned because as we've talked about numerous times, there's really nothing fair or judicial about the law. It's, it's really, honestly, a presentation of facts and who can convince a judge and a jury that their position is right. So we'll be watching this closely to see what happens here. But I think this is an absolute ridiculous suit. 
and don't be fooled by the motivation for it because everyone knows that the motivation for this lawsuit is money. All right, so now let's get into some of the questions that we have received this week. And in no order, I want to start with social media and social media rules, especially social media as it applies to employment. Over the last few years, uh, employers have been utilizing social media policies as part of their hiring and or employment packet that they give to their employees. Uh, sometimes it's rolled into an employee handbook, other times it's a standalone policy. But since the uh, introduction of these social media policies over the last few years, there have been a great deal of challenges to the enforceability and legality of these agreements. So I want to talk a little bit about what makes an enforceable agreement, what controls, who's looking at these agreements, determining whether or not they're legal or unlawful, and what you as an employer and you as an employee need to know. So first, let's talk about social media in general. Uh, we all know that social media has become part of our daily lives. Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, Pinterest, Instagram, these are well-known social media um, outlets that we use on a daily basis. And it originated, all of those who have watched a Facebook movie or have read about Facebook and how it, how it started, it really started as a social experiment. It was a uh, means of connecting people to other people for primarily social purposes, friends, neighbors, family. But business owners and, uh, and large corporations immediately saw the benefit to social media and how it can have a positive impact on a business. And there's no disputing that that's true. It does. Uh, it allows businesses to communicate to a large number of followers all at once. It is a cheap and effective means of advertising. Uh, think about uh, 20 years ago, and you wanted to reach a large-scale audience, and you were a small to mid-sized company. Your options were to buy radio or television advertising, which is costly. Um, look for some sort of um, advertising uh, on billboards or print media, and, and all that costs money. But nowadays, you create your free Facebook page, and you're free to post as often and whatever, for the most part, you want. You can put up coupons. You can put up deals. You can put up your pricing. You can run contests and giveaways, and you're reaching a tremendous amount of people, not to mention the viral aspect of social media, and this is important to what we're going to talk about in a minute. Viral content is uh, something that is posted on a website, blog, or social media page and spreads like a virus. It replicates because people are viewing it, they are forwarding it to other people, or it just appears in their feed, which is you know, um, a list of, of things on their Facebook page or Twitter, and it spreads. It spreads just like a virus, which is, which is why they call it a viral post. So the impact that one post can have is tremendous. You can reach thousands and actually millions of people with one post. So businesses are utilizing it because of the tremendous effect it has and the, the cost. But what's going on and what started this whole idea of social media policies is that social media has blurred the lines between your private life and your business life. So let's look at something like uh, Facebook. Facebook has an about you section, about you page. And one of the things that it asks you to fill in, if you want, is your place of employment, 
what what your career is, um, things about your, yourself. So the average person, you know, they'll put some facts about themselves. And if you uh, take a poll, you know, more than 50% of the people will indicate on their Facebook page where they work. So they work at ABC Hospital, let's say. That's on their personal page. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But what businesses were finding is that you would have an employee who was acting in a way that was inappropriate or posting things that were inappropriate on their Facebook page. Now, when you look at Facebook page and you see somebody who has pictures of their drunken weekend in Las Vegas and, uh, you know, racy photos and whatnot, and then you look at their about us or about you page and you find out that they're working for ABC Hospital, that could have an adverse impact on the business because would you want to go see Dr. Smith who just spent the last weekend in a drunken stupor in Las Vegas? Probably not. So business owners started to figure out ways to uh, control what people were posting. And that raises a question. What can a business do about someone's personal posts on social media? Does a business have the right to control or patrol what an employee posts on social media? Well, let's look at this in two different scenarios. First, businesses will have their own social media pages. And employees are often permitted to post on those social media pages. Now, they clearly are the property of the business. We're not talking about your personal page. We're talking about ABC Hospitals page. And oftentimes they'll allow staff to post something on there. Most businesses nowadays have gotten to the point where they have one person who controls the social media, be it a marketing department or an individual, and that's their way of gatekeeping what gets put onto their social media pages. But there are thousands of businesses who allow employees to post on their social media page. So there are rules that they set about what you can and cannot post on the company page. Separate from that, you've got the issue that we talked about a few minutes ago with respect to people's personal pages. So the idea of social media policies was born out of this dilemma. What do we do? And originally, the social media policies that were coming out were extremely one-sided, all shaded towards the employer. So, for example, uh, uh, one such policy involved uh, a paragraph that said that employees are strictly prohibited from discussing any business information or activity on their personal social media pages. So this is one of the earlier social media policies that came out. And it was challenged by the employees. I'm going to uh, give you an example. So there were union members, there were employees of a union, and they were posting back and forth on social media to one another about the conditions of their employment, their pay, how unfair certain things were, overtime issues, and the fact that they believed that they were being underpaid. And because social media is so easily spread, other employees who happened to be friends of these people posting raised this issue with the employer. And the employer fired the two individuals who were, was, who were posting information about overtime and their, uh, their conditions of employment. 
So they filed a lawsuit. And this was brought to the attention of the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. Now, most people believe that the NLRB is strictly limited to addressing issues of union or unionized activity, but there's more to it than that. So it is true that the NLRB will regulate and deal with issues concerning unions, but their powers are broad and they expand to uh, activities that involve protected, concerted activity. So under the National Labor Relations Act, employees have the legal right to talk about certain conditions of their employment. So for example, something like their pay, something like overtime, working conditions, that's permissible to be discussed without fear of being fired. So if you're fired as a result of communications or conversations that you had concerning the conditions of your employment, your pay, overtime, and you get fired, the National Labor Relations Act protects you. So now we're looking at social media, and the NLRB says, well, those same protected concerted activities that are protected under the National Labor Relations Act are also available to employees who take part in that same activity over social media. So the fact that you're not having a verbal conversation or verbal communication with someone else uh, directly, face-to-face, and talking about the conditions of your employment is really irrelevant so long as your activity on the, on the Facebook page or on the social media page is considered to be protected, concerted activity. So the NLRB decided to uh, issue some opinions concerning a number of these social media policies, and they would fine or overturn decisions uh, by some of these employers. So the case that we were talking about earlier where you had these two individuals who were fired for posting things on Facebook about their working conditions, um, the employer was fined. Uh, it was deemed to be held unlawful that they terminated the employer uh, employees. So fast forward to 2014, where are we now with social media policies? Well, social media policies are still very prevalent and they're increasing in frequency. So you'll go and you'll get hired by a small company or a mid-sized company and you're surprised to find out that they have a social media policy in place. So let's talk first about employers. What are your rights through a social media policy? Well, you certainly can provide guidelines to your employees about their behavior and social media. You can suggest to them that they want to present themselves and as representatives of your company, their professional um, reputation by being careful with what they post on social media. You can't necessarily prohibit someone from posting bikini pictures of uh, themselves in Mexico because you think that it shed some sort of negative light or has a negative impact on your business. I mean, that's something that you can't do. That's their personal right. So you can't build something into a social media policy that says you're strictly forbidden for, for um, posting pictures of yourself in bikinis and blah, blah, blah um, on, on your Facebook page. You, that's going to be just deemed to be unlawful. And you also can't use a broad brush approach and say that you're not allowed to talk about the conditions of your employment on social media because that violates the National Labor Relations Act. You, you might not want to allow it. You might not like it when it's done. But if employees are talking on social media about the conditions of their employment, that's protected concerted activity that you cannot regulate. 
So to have that in your social media policy, you're only going to have it over term. It will be held unlawful. You could be fined. You could um, be sued. So having that language in there doesn't protect you. So here's a case where overbroad protections are not beneficial at all. You're going to, to, I think, lose the impact of what you're trying to accomplish. So what should you do? If you can't prohibit certain activities, what, what should you do? Well, your obligations under the National Labor Relations Act are limited to allowing protected concerted activities. If what's being posted does not involve a condition of an employee's employment, so for example, my boss, Mr. Smith, he has cancer. Um, he is gay. Um, he wears a hairpiece. That sort of activity is not protected. It's not a condition of your employment. You're not talking about wages or overtime or anything protected by the National Labor Relations Act. These are, are personal statements that you are, are making about your employer or a boss or supervisor. Can you, as the employer, fire someone for that sort of posting? Yes, you can. That's not protected concerted activity. Aside from slander and, and, and defamation laws, can an employer fire somebody for posting something that is inappropriate or that damages the reputation of the company if it is not a protected concerted activity? The answer is yes. So the National Labor Relations Act and the NLRB itself, they're not handcuffing employers. They're just saying that there are certain guidelines that you have to follow and things that you cannot do. And violating the terms of the National Labor Relations Act is one of them. You have to allow the ability of employees to speak their minds concerning concerted activity, protected concerted activity. It stems from the, the union issues that the NLRB originally addressed when it was first created, and that is employees have the right to gather together to discuss the terms and conditions of their employment for fairness in the workforce. But there's no such rule that says that you can't fire somebody for non-protected concerted activity. So let me give you an example of, of something that an employer could fire an employee for, aside from the comments that we just made. So you're working at a online ticket store, and you've had a bad week, right? You've been um, late to work. You've had car trouble. The boss has been on you, right? Where are your fax cover sheets for your TPS reports? And you decide that you're going to post something. On, on the website or on your social media page. And you're going to say something like, this ticket place that I work for sucks. Or you post that on the company page. And this is actually something that happened with StubHub. An employer posted uh, negative comments about their, their, an employee posted negative comments about their employer, StubHub. And uh, it was some expletives in there, and they were fired for it. And they went before the National Labor Relations Board, and they said, well, wait a minute, this is unfair. This violates the law. And it was determined that it does not, because it wasn't a protected, concerted activity. So you have rights as an employer. You can terminate for certain activities. My advice to you is that if something were to come up and you need to make a determination as to how you should discipline or if you should discipline an employee, you speak to an attorney who is familiar with employment law and social media rights policies and the National Labor Relations Act. 
don't go to your local divorce attorney and ask about social media policy because you're not going to get the right answer. Go to your in-house counsel. Go to your outside counsel. Hire an attorney because making a rash decision is going to land you in hot water. Now, employees, what can you do? You have the right to post things on your social media pages. You have the right to do whatever you want. However, keep this in mind. Your reputation online is the same as your reputation in person. If you are a therapist, for example, and you identify on your social media page that you are employed by um, A and B psychotherapy company, and you've got a number of, of clients, number of patients that you deal with on a routine basis. And let's say that it's children. Let's say that it's teens and young adults. And you go to Cancun and you get drunk and you're dancing on the bars and somebody takes pictures and you think it's fun, right? You get home, you post them on Facebook. Well, what impact on your professional life do you think those pictures are going to have if and when your colleagues see it, or your patients, are you going to have that same level of professionalism in the eyes of a patient? What about the patient's mother? Or is she going to think that you are a real qualified therapist when you're dancing nearly naked on top of a bar in Cancun? So you have to think along the lines of, yes, freedom of speech, it's great. But the fact is, is that what you post online can have severe consequences on your employment and on your reputation. There have been people who have posted things online who have lost their jobs and now are finding it difficult to get rehired because that reputation has followed them. So you have to be very careful what you post online. We talked earlier about the viral nature of online advertising or posting. Once you send something out there, you can't get it back. You can delete a post, but people have already seen it. It's already traveling. A few months ago, it was right before Christmas, there was uh, a woman who posted something about uh, AIDS and Africa, and that uh, she was not going to get it because she was white. Right? I'm sure you have an idea of what I'm talking about. It was on Twitter. And that woman got herself in significant trouble for doing that. People don't view her in the same light as they did prior to that. Do you want to face that sort of, of blacklisting? because you did something stupid, you have to have and take some responsibility for your actions online. The same way you would not write something in a letter and send it to your employer or to your clients. You know, you wouldn't take pictures of yourself in Cancun and mail them to a client, would you? But when you post things online, you're essentially doing just that. So you need to take some responsibility. You need to understand as an employee that what you do can have an adverse impact on your employer. And so long as it is not protected concerted activity, you can be fired. You need to understand that your actions have an impact on you, your professional life, your ability to get a different job, your ability to be promoted. So think twice before you post. All right, now another question that we received uh, this week deals with representing yourself as a small business in court. So one question that we answered online um, said, I've got a small legal matter. It's around $5,000, and it's a customer who is suing my business. I went to court and the judge told me that I cannot represent myself. This is a violation of my civil rights, isn't it? 
Well, let's look at that. So in New Jersey and a, a large um, number of other states, a business or corporation is not permitted to represent themselves. They must have an attorney representing the company. You can argue that it's unfair, but that's the rule. It's the rule in New York, the rule in New Jersey. So it might be surprising, but there's nothing you can do about it. If you are a business and you are either instituting a legal action or defending against a claim, you need to hire an attorney. You cannot have your business represent or you cannot represent your business. An attorney needs to do that. Now, if you're sued individually and you are foolish enough to represent yourself, you, you can do that. But your business needs to be represented by an attorney. So it's surprising, but you have to understand that. So what does that mean? Well, if you find yourself in situations where customers or clients are constantly complaining, threatening lawsuits, my suggestion to you is that you start looking for a qualified business and or litigation attorney that you can just develop a relationship with. You don't need to retain them, put them on a monthly retainer just yet. Wait until you, you know, get sued or see what happens. You know, perhaps you need to have an attorney help you fix certain policies and contracts. But we're talking right now about representation in litigation. So I'm not suggesting that everyone go out and hire a business lawyer, but go out and find a business lawyer that you feel comfortable with. Somebody that when an issue arises, you can go to and say, hey, listen, here's the situation. Can you help me? The worst thing to do is to have no idea what kind of lawyer or what lawyer you should go to in the event that you get sued. Because then when you get the complaint served on you and you've got 30 to 35 days to answer the complaint. Now you spend that 30 days scrambling, not knowing where to go, what to do, who to look for. You end up hiring a real estate attorney that has no experience in litigation because Aunt Millie told you it was a good idea because he did a great job for her. And then, you know, you find yourself in hot water. So while you're not being sued, that's the time to go out and find an attorney who can represent your business in the event that something does happen because a business cannot represent itself. You, as the owner, cannot represent the business. Only an attorney can. Okay, next question that we had. Real estate costs. There's a lot of questions about, do I need a lawyer to close on a residential property? What should that lawyer charge? What's fair? What's unfair? And there's no simple answer because it really depends on your geographic area. But I'll tell you that in um, the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, closing fees that are charged by an attorney range anywhere from 700 to Fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars, and it's a it's a wide range. Well, well, why is that, and what's the difference? So, first of all, let's ask the question: Do you need an attorney to represent you in a real estate transaction? And the answer is yes. Can you do it yourself? You can, but then you have a fool for a client because it is complicated. It is something that if you're not familiar with it, you can very easily screw up and you're not talking about a $50 object. You're talking about a, a 200000 plus investment. You're talking about a mortgage, you know, you being obligated to pay the debt on this massive purchase. Don't try to represent yourself in a real estate transaction. So the answer to the first question is, yes, you need one. You need an attorney to review contracts. You need an attorney to help negotiate deals, what's fair, what's not fair, issues with respect to uh, requests for credits due to uh, 
the results of a, of a home inspection, that sort of thing. You need someone to be at the closing to help you sign the right documents to make sure that everyone gets paid. It is necessary for you to hire an attorney. So now, what do we charge? Well, attorneys, I said, charge anywhere from $700 to $2,000. What, why? What's the difference? Does the $700 attorney do less work? Is he less qualified? Is the $2,000 attorney going to guarantee that your property closes? The answer to that is simple. First of all, just like in any legal matter, an attorney cannot guarantee the outcome of a case, and that includes a real estate transaction. There are so many moving parts to a real estate transaction that no one can guarantee that everything is going to fall into place. But an attorney can help you. They give you the best shot of closing that deal. Now, with respect to the fees, the average price point in North Jersey is around $1,000, maybe $1,100, $1,200, but somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,000. You will find people online who are advertising $500, $600, $700 closings. But what you don't understand at first, because they don't explain it to you, is that that's, that nominal fee, that, that hook to bring you into their practice, doesn't include a whole host of other necessary activities that that lawyer must do in conjunction with your closing. Preparation of documents, letters, letters to the adversary, phone calls. And so at the end of the day, you are going to end up paying 1000 to $1,500 to that lawyer who says, I charge a flat fee of $700. So my suggestion to you is this. When you're talking to an attorney, and you're trying to ascertain what they're going to charge you for the closing, A, if they're charging you somewhere in the area of $1,000 to $1,200, $1,300, you know, if it's a massive property and there's a lot to do, $1,500, you're okay. I think that above $1,500, you have to start to question why it's so much. And I think that below $1,000, six, $700, you have to start wondering, well, what are the additional charges that you're not telling me about? Let's say that you settle on the average price um, of $1,000, right? We're going to call that the average price. You might have to pay some additional costs for things that are out of the ordinary. Let's say that you have uh, an, an apartment that you are purchasing or selling and there's a tenant uh, perhaps you need the uh, attorney to prepare a use and occupancy agreement to allow the tenant to stay in the property for another two or three months after ownership transfers. That's something that might not be covered by the average attorney's flat fee closing price. But an attorney should disclose all that information to you. When you go to talk to your real estate attorney, he or she should tell you what the flat fee is what that flat fee covers, and what is not covered by that flat fee. If you leave that office being confused in any way, that is not the attorney for you. Because real estate transactions with respect to pricing are relatively straightforward. Here is the flat fee. Here is what it encompasses. Here is what not, is not covered by that flat fee. So, do you need a lawyer? Yes. What's the price you should be paying? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 1000 to $1,500, right? Typically, we see $1,000 to $1,200 being um, the average in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. All right, next question that we have to get to deals with at-will employment. So a question was asked, I was told by my employer that I am an at-will employee. I don't understand what that means. Can you explain it? All right, so let's take a look at categories of employees in New Jersey, but also throughout the country. There are essentially two types of employees. There are contract employees and there are at-will employees. Contract employees are somebody who are hired, who is hired, and they receive a contract. You will work for us for a period of 36 months, you will receive X amount in compensation. 
you will have medical benefits. You can be fired if you breach these policies. You sign the contract, they sign the contract. So now, just like any other sort of contractual agreement, the employer is obligated to fulfill the terms of your contract. So if you sign a 36-month contract and the employer decides that they don't like you, well, unless you have violated the terms of the contract, they can't fire you. Now, compare that to an at-will employee, meaning there is no contract. You can quit whenever you want, and you can be fired whenever the employer deems sufficient or deems that it's, it's reasonable. Would you feel more comfortable as a contract employee? I don't know. You know, that, that really depends on the individual because the same way that the employer cannot breach the contract, neither can you as the employee. And the vast majority of jobs in the country and definitely in the tri-state area involve at-will employment. Okay, People are moving away from contract jobs. There are still certain jobs where you have union contracts and that sort of thing, but in general, I think that it's safe to say 85% or above of employers in the United States are hiring people at will. Okay, Because you don't want to be stuck as an employee in a job that you don't like, and you also don't want to be stuck with an employee as an employer who's not fulfilling the terms of the employment. So what are your rights as an at-will employee? Well, they're the same rights that you have um, as a contract employee to a certain extent. You can be fired at any time. There's no contract. There's no obligation to keep you for a set period of time. But just like contract employees, you are not um, allowed to have your rights under, let's take New Jersey, for example, the laws against discrimination. You can't have your, your rights trampled upon, especially due to uh, sex, race, religion, creed, that sort of thing, which would violate the law against discrimination. So every employee in the state of New Jersey, we're going to use New Jersey as the example, is protected under federal laws and under the New Jersey law against discrimination. What does that mean? Well, that means that you cannot be discriminated against on the basis of race, religion, color, national origin, age, ancestry, nationality, marital or domestic partnership status, sex, gender, gender identity or expression, disability, military service, affectional, affectional or sexual orientation, atypical cellular or blood traits, and genetic information. If you are fired or not hired as a result of any of those categories, your rights under the laws, a law against discrimination have been violated. That does not matter whether you are a contract or, or at-will employee. You are entitled to protections under the state's laws concerning discrimination. The only distinction between an at-will and contract employee is that you can be fired at any time for any reason so long as the reason is not discriminatory in nature. You don't fit personality-wise with your boss, with your employer, with the supervisors. They can fire you. You're not showing up to work on time. They can fire you. You don't turn in your TPS report. They can fire you. You know, so you don't have the protection of the contract, but you do have all the other legal protections that are offered to employees throughout the state. So is it that big a deal? Well, first of all, I say no. And second of all, what can you do about it? Because the amount of contract jobs that are out there right now are, are minimal. They're few. So understand at-will employment means you can leave at any time, you can be fired at any time, but you still are protected by the federal and state laws against discrimination that protect every employee in the country. Okay, next, I want to get to another question. This one's about basic estate planning. 
So when people think about estate planning, they think about, you know, J.R. Ewing and making sure that um, Ewing Oil and everyone who is a a beneficiary under uh, J.R.'s will is going to have all of, of, of their money protected, right? South Fork is going to go to the right person. And why would I need to do basic estate planning? I'm not JR, right? I, I've, I've got no savings, just a checking account, got a family, I own a house. Why do I need to go do a will? You know, I don't need 37 lawyers sitting down with me like JR has and, you know, working out who's going to get what. It's not necessary. Do I need to do anything? No, I don't have the time for that. Funny, by the way, that the majority of lawyers that I have spoken to over the past year have told me that they themselves don't have a will. So uh, the idea of uh, estate planning is something that I think people are sort of misunderstanding. It's not just for J.R. Ewing or Donald Trump. It's for all of us, and we all need to focus on it, okay, because everybody dies. You know, I'll tell you, personally, you know, in January, my mother died, and my family is, uh, you know, moderate income. They don't have a lot of savings. They're not, uh, you know, wealthy individuals. So when my mother died, my father was left with the... Um, the, the problems involving burial, I mean, very real economical problems. You know, yes, you're dealing with the grief, the loss of your loved one, but now you've got to deal with, with these, these business issues, right? Where is this person going to be buried? How am I going to afford to bury them? What did they want? Did they want to go somewhere special? What kind of casket do I get? Do I get a headstone? How much is it? What do I do with their debts? What do I do with their medical bills? You know, and it becomes a very traumatic experience because you're not allowed to just grieve. You have to deal with the reality of our society, right? They've got to go in the ground somewhere. They've got to go into a mausoleum. They've got something has to happen to, to the person, and it costs money. So when people say to me, what do I need a will for? What do I need to do estate planning? You know, you stop thinking of estate planning in the large sense of only wealthy people do estate planning. I'm talking basic estate planning, a will, perhaps a living will, some burial instruction. Think about insurance. For, you know, burial. There's burial insurance. Think about how you're going to save for a plot or for a headstone. You know, in in dealing with my father, he has been searching for a headstone for my mother now for about three weeks. And they range in price from $3,000 to $20,000. And and this isn't a headstone. This is a plaque that, that goes in the ground because the cemetery that she's buried in doesn't allow raised headstones. They have grave markers on the ground. So, I mean, can you imagine that? $25,000? It's more than the cost of the plot. And unfortunately, death and burial is a big business. Similar to weddings, Right? They, they get you coming and going with weddings. Not only do you have to go to Kleinfeld's for your wedding dress, but then you have to hire a photographer who wants to charge you $20,000 because you need every single picture of everything that happens that day. And, you know, you, obviously you want to actually get the photos, right, not just have them taken. So they're going to charge you more money for that. And then, you know, you don't own the photos. The photographer owns the photos. And what about the DJ? You don't want just somebody that can play music or a band. You need, you know, the best. They get you coming and going with weddings, but they do the same thing with funerals. Maybe it's not so sales pitchy because they have to balance your emotional state at the time. But the fact is they want to get paid. They're not going to give you a casket 
unless you pay them. As a matter of fact, all funeral costs are typically required up front. So, how does this tie in with the question about estate planning? Every single one of us should, at the basic level, have a will. Do you need a lawyer to do a will? No. You can do it yourself. There's tons of software available. Would it be better to have a lawyer? Yes. Is it expensive to have a basic will prepared? No. You know, most attorneys are in somewhere in the range of $250 for a basic will. Now, again, we're not talking about J.R. Ewing. We're talking about a basic will. What happens if I die? What about my debts? What about my property? Who gets what? So everyone should have that. Whether you hire a lawyer or not, go do it. Get it done. There are individual requirements in the states concerning what's a valid will. It's beneficial to talk to a lawyer about that. But put your will together. Separately, you need to talk to your family. If you're a husband and wife, you need to talk to one another about death. What do you do when you or your spouse, spouse die? What are your wishes? What do you want to do about life support? What do you want to... These are basic questions, and I'm telling you from experience, don't wait to the last minute. Don't wait till the person's on their deathbed trying to figure out what to do. Plan. It's, it's, it's grim. Nobody wants to talk about it. Go find a lawyer. For a minimal amount of money, you can have a will, a living will. They can help you prepare for what happens next. Don't put it off. Don't stick your head in the sand. Don't say it's not going to happen to you. Because it will. It does. You know, you're not Yoda. You're not going to die and then come back as a, as a ghost and, 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 you know, be totally okay to wander around Dagobah. You're going to die. You need to help your family afford it, prepare for it. So it's really, really important, and I say this from experience. So... Please, get a lawyer, go online, find some software, get yourself a plan. Talk to your family members. It will save you a tremendous amount of aggravation, frustration, and grief later on. So basic estate planning is something all of us should be doing. Go see an attorney. Go get help online. Okay? Um, we've got... A few other questions I, I was hoping to get through, but we're running out of time. I'll try to get through one more, which is, do I need an employee handbook? This was asked by a uh, mid-sized company who has terms and conditions of employment, but they don't have a handbook. Uh, the answer is, I would strongly recommend that you do have a handbook. What should be in the handbook? Your sexual harassment policy. Um, it's a good idea to include your social media policy. Also, you can have your uh, payment structure. You can have your days off. You can have um, holidays and things like that listed. It's a good idea to have a written handbook. It's important for litigation purposes because you want to be able to show that you have a policy. So if you have a claim of harassment or sexual harassment, it's, it's a good idea from a legal standpoint to be able to show that you had a sexual harassment policy in your handbook that the employee was aware of, received, signed. So it, it is important that you have a handbook. How do you get one? You can go online. You can, is it the best? No. You can go to an attorney. They can write you up a handbook. Is it expensive? It depends on how extensive you want that handbook to be. But... The important thing here is that, yes, you do need a handbook. If you are one, a solo, a sole proprietor, and you, you have a, a helper, do you need a handbook? Probably not. But if you're dealing with multiple employees, it is important that you have a handbook. So we're going to wrap up. I'd like to thank you for joining me. I'll be back next week. We told you that we'll have Brian Glynn on, and we're going to get through a variety of interesting topics and uh, talk to him about his business so I, I invite you all to come back next week and tune in for that. If you have any legal questions that you would like answered or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, give us a call at 973-949-3770, or you can email me directly, 
at plamont at peterlamontesq.com. Until next time, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and I'd like you to remember that there's power in understanding the law. Pros and the no start with Lowe's, because Lowe's has the fixtures and the savings to get the job done right. Working on a big bath project? Now you can get up to 35% off select bath faucets, and you can even save up to 20% on select toilets. Plus, order what you need online and pick it up in-store. See Lowe'sforpros.com for details. So, pro, now that you know, start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 3-1 while supplies last. Selection varies by location, U.S. only. Pros and a no start with Lowe's, because Lowe's has the fixtures and the savings to get the job done right. Working on a big bath project? Now you can get up to 35% off select bath faucets, and you can even save up to 20% on select toilets. Plus, order what you need online and pick it up in-store. See Lowe'sforpros.com for details. So, pro, now that you know, start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 3-1 while supplies last. Selection varies by location, U.S. only.